and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're exploring genes, brains, and the mind as we ask how much of our personality is innate and whether anything we do as adults can change who we fundamentally are. We all love a good personality quiz, whether it's something formal like the Myers-Briggs test or less formal like which Harry Potter animal are you? There's something very reassuring about being able to summarise the many facets of our personalities into a simple descriptor. But where does our personality come from? Obviously, our brains have a lot to do with it, but is it genetic differences in our brains that lead to differences in how we think? Is it all in our upbringing and childhood experiences? Or is it something else? To tackle this question, I sat down with Kevin Mitchell, an Associate Professor of Genetics and Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. In 2018, he wrote a book on the subject called Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are. So, to begin our discussion, I wanted to know what was happening in 2018 that made him want to write this book. My own background is in developmental neurobiology, trying to figure out how the brain gets put together during development. What are the instructions in the genome that direct those processes? At the same time, I was interested in behavioral genetics and and especially psychiatric genetics, which is looking at how variation in genetics leads to variation in cognition or personality traits or predisposition or risk of psychiatric illness. And what seemed to be coming clear was that those two fields of developmental neurobiology and sort of psychological genetics might actually be really overlapping. That in fact, the variation, the genetic variation that manifests in differences in our personality and cognition and so on may actually be affecting the way the brain develops. And in fact, that behavioral genetics may be developmental neurogenetics. It may be the same thing. And so really what I wanted to do was write that book, which was trying to unite those very different fields with, you know, they they come from very different disciplines and traditions so that that overlap would be apparent. And also, I guess, to make the point that if we want to understand how genotypes, how variation in DNA sequence is related to variation in really high-level cognitive functions and psychiatric symptoms and psychological traits, we need to take a developmental lens. The only way you get from genotypes to phenotypes is through those processes of development. So if you think about that relationship in too linear or direct a way, you're really making a mistake. And people, I think, have tried to look for very direct relationships between mutations in or variations in gene X or gene Y and said, you know, this is a gene for language or this is a gene for sociability or for conscientiousness or something like that. And I think that's a mistake. I don't think those kinds of high-level cognitive functions have direct molecular underpinnings. I think they have neural underpinnings, but the, the way that those neural circuits and systems get set up depends on the genes that specify those instructions for development. How is a brain made? Brains are really complicated. Like we think of how a heart is made. There are genes that tell you that this is where you build your muscle fibres. This is where you put your nerve fibres. We're all good. It gets a bit bigger as we grow older. 
brains seem to be still developing well after birth even yeah so how at the most basic level how how do you make a brain <laughs> what's involved what's involved okay so the first steps in making a brain are similar to making any other kind of part of the embryo right so you have to make your muscles in the right place and your skin in the right place and guts and and you know liver and heart and so on and you have to make your nervous system in the right place as well so there's patterning signals as the fertilized egg develops, right? As it divides and you get more and more cells, they start to become different from each other. So they're turning on different profiles of genes. Some genes are active and some are not. And that's what makes a a liver cell different from a skin cell. And within the whole embryo, all of those cell differentiation processes have to be spatially coordinated and temporally coordinated. So you start by making the neural tube, basically setting the nervous system apart from the rest of the embryo, and then that gets subsequently divided so that you have, you know, the forebrain becomes different from the midbrain and the hindbrain and the spinal cord, and they develop as they should. And that process of subdivision and specialization just keeps happening in the brain. And what's different with the nervous system, first of all, is that the number of cell types is vast. I mean, even in the retina, which is, you know, really part of the central nervous system, there are hundreds of different cell types even just in that little part of the nervous system. And they're designed in circuits to do different kinds of computations in different parts of the brain. And of course, then all those parts have to talk to each other as well. So that's the problem that the genome, in a way, in a sense, has to solve. And we're going to be talking about the differences between different individuals' brains. Yes. So where do those differences happen? Is it in which genes are switched on and off? Is it in the timing of it, the connections? Yeah, it's in all of those things. I mean, basically anything, any of those processes that I described of the differentiation of the cells, establishment of their morphology, establishment of their electrical and biochemical properties, the laying down of the connections and so on, all of those things are specified by some proteins. So they're cellular processes carried out by many, many different proteins, thousands and thousands of them. And the results normally of all of them working together is that you get a brain within the sort of viable range for a human being. But all of those um, genes that encode those proteins are you know, subject to some kind of genetic variation that just arises all the time. Every time DNA is copied, when sperm or eggs are made, some errors creep in. Not many. I mean, it's amazingly faithful, but some errors creep in. And so genetic variation accumulates in the population over time. You get some new ones, but you also have some older ones that were inherited from generations ago. And that inevitably means that all of those processes are subject to some individual variation. So we have, if you like, a kind of a recipe or a program in the human genome for making the human brain but we all have our own individual variation on that for making a brain like ours. It's like in the second challenge in Great British Bake Off, they give everyone the same recipe and then they present eight different shoe buns or what have you at the yeah. end. But yeah. they never look the same. They never do. And, and you know what? The, the, so the first point right, is that the, those sort of instructions have to be interpreted by the cell and by the embryo as it's going along. The, the genome doesn't do anything by itself. You know, the DNA is really chemically inert. But the second point there is that, and the baking analogy is a good one, because even if you gave the same person the same recipe and asked them to do it over and over again, that you can never bake the same cake twice. And 
really what that highlights is that when you start thinking of this relationship of genotypes to phenotypes as being mediated by development, you realize that development itself is another source of variation. It's not just differences in genes that set up the thing and then maybe experience an environment and so on. It's also just development itself that is a really an overlooked third source of variation. We had a whole episode earlier this series where Kat Arney was talking about nature nurture and what she calls the wobble, just the random factor. Yeah. You know, sometimes your molecule just hits this bit instead of hits that bit and who knows what happens. Absolutely. So we've kind of set the framework for how a brain is made, but a lot of your book talks and the bit that gave me multiple mini existential crises while reading it, I had to just take some time out, was it's, it's all about personality, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and there's higher levels. So we've got intellect, cognition. So firstly, when you're talking about personality, what does that include? When we're talking about where do personality traits come from? Are they fixed? Are they flexible? Which traits are we considering in that? Yeah, so that's a really tricky question. And to be honest, it goes to the field of personality psychology, where there's lots of different ways to define what we would view as personality traits of different people. So it rests on the idea that people do have some personality traits. There are some aspects about them, some ways of behaving that you would say, well, that's typical. Sally behaves like that. I totally expected her to do that. I predicted that she would. That's absolutely in character for her. And so the trick in personality psychology is to try and look at that vast array of different ways people behave in different situations and sort of extract from all of that variation a few dimensions along which you can categorize a lot of the behavioral differences. And there's lots of different ways to do that, but the most popular version fixes on five major traits, which are called extroversion, conscientiousness, openness to experience, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And together, those constructs capture a fair amount of the variability in personality traits in an abstracted fashion. That is, we're trying to get at something that removes the context, right? It, it, it's a sort of an averaged across context of individuals and across context of situation. So having said that, right, so those are the tools we have to work with. And psychologists have come up with ways to put a kind of a number on them which is a little arbitrary, but you can ask, you know, you can give people questionnaires, you can sort of tot up scores to say, well, look, this person's more extroverted than that person. So those measures are useful, but we should keep in mind that they're artificial statistical constructs. And one question is, you know, what do they mean if we say, say we identify this statistical construct like extroversion from looking at all these questionnaires and clusters of different, you know, ways of behaving, what does that mean? Does that mean there's some circuit in the brain that's doing extroversion? You know, some particular part where we could look in the brain and say, oh, look, this is the bit. It's bigger in this person than that person. That means they're more extroverted. And, you know, people have looked for decades using neuroimaging and other tools to try and find those kinds of brain correlates of these personality constructs and really come up empty. There's no good replicated sort of biomarkers or physical correlates in the brain for those kinds of traits. And my own view is that they actually represent not one thing. There's not one latent variable in your brain that's contributing to all these different manifestations of extroversion or neuroticism. There's lots and lots of things that are varying that are sort of 
tuned differently between different people that may collectively contribute to you having a high level of extroversion or a low level of neuroticism or whatever it is. So if I gave you a brain, you couldn't tell me, ah, this is the brain of even an extreme extrovert or an extreme introvert. No, no. And you can't even do it across groups. Um, even if you gave me, you know, thousands of people, I, you know, you just can't come up with crude measures, sort of simple, single things in the brain where you could say, this is the bit that explains how conscientious somebody is. And, you know, I mean, it makes sense because that's a, it's a very crude, reductive kind of way of thinking. It's like phrenology, really going back to bumps on the skull and so on. And just empirically, it has turned out not to be true. So if there isn't a bit of the brain for each of these five traits, does that mean that it's all to do with the environment. So we all start off with the same brain and then it's just what happens to it. No, no, not at all. So we, we definitely don't start as a blank slate. There's definitely variation in the neural systems that contribute to a high level descriptor like extroversion or neuroticism. It's not that there are no neural bases to those things. It's that there isn't one. You know, there's not just one thing that you could point to, right? So there's lots and lots of things. And what I tried to do in the book was link the human personality psychology to the neuroscience of decision-making that we know about in animals. So when you're working with animals, obviously, you can do experiments that you can't do in, in humans. And one of the tools that we have these days is called optogenetics, where you can use a protein that's sensitive to light it's an ion channel. So when light is shone on it, it will open up a channel in the membrane that lets electrical ions into the cell. And if that's a neuron, well, that's the same mechanism that neurons use to initiate an action potential. So what that means is that using those tools, if we express those proteins in very specific sets of neurons, and then we can use optical fibers to activate them in mice, then we can turn off or on neurons in an animal while it's behaving. This was fascinating to me. I worked on fruit flies, their behavior, but in the lab next door, they were doing more of the neuroscience. Yeah. And they would shine a light on these flies because they're transparent enough, it goes into their brains. And it would make them fly or make them stop flying. Yeah. It, literally at the flick of a switch, you control individual nerve cells. Yeah, it's incredible. And what you can do, I mean, you can kind of you know, remote control some simple actions. And that's true in a mouse or a rat as well. You can make them walk, you can make them freeze, you can make them sleep or fight or hunt or try to mate or, you know, all kinds of things that like you can make them turn right or turn left and so on. But what's really interesting is that you can actually not just change what they're doing, you can change what they're thinking, right? You can isolate circuits that when an animal is making a decision, say, it makes them more or less confident, or it makes them more or less risk averse or sensitive to threats, or it will make them more patient when waiting for a reward. So what you can find in the brain is that there are circuits that control those aspects of decision-making. So when you're making a decision, you have to weigh up a whole bunch of different options. You have to evaluate whether they're good or bad. Is this one going to lead to a reward or a punishment? That obviously links to prior memories and experience, but it also, you know, if I say, yeah, this is going to be rewarding, well, my reward tuning circuits might be a little higher tuned than yours, say. So I might find it more subjectively rewarding than you would, and my behavior might therefore be different from what yours would be. So even if we both have the same experience, 
I don't know, betting on horses and we both receive £100 from it, our brain differences that are fixed at birth might change. I might be like, oh, £100, that was all right. And you might be like, wow, that's the best thing in the world. Yeah, exactly. Except for the fixed at birth bit. Okay. I think they're pre-wired at birth and it's inevitable. If our genome, the human genome, specifies generally how a human brain is put together, it's inevitable that there will be genetic variation that affects those tunings, right? And it's also inevitable that there will be developmental variation because there isn't enough information in the genome to specify the wiring of the nervous system down to every cell and every connection. It just kind of specifies some rules. So we are inevitably born with some differences in those kinds of tunings that I think ultimately collectively in sort of complicated ways manifest as these high-level statistical traits that psychologists have identified. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that our patterns of behavior are fixed. Those are just underlying predispositions, and then they inform our behavior somewhat. So if someone is you know, slightly risk-averse, that's going to affect their behavior over their lifetime in a statistical sense, right? I mean, not in every situation. Some, sometimes they'll take a risk. It's just most of the time, or on average, they'll take risks less than somebody else. But that doesn't mean we're just robots with certain tunings, right? And, and I think one of the key things that, that I don't want to suggest is that just because we have these innate predispositions, that those determine our behavior over our lifetimes. They don't. They influence it. But our behavior emerges through a trajectory of the experiences that we have which are not just things that happen to us, right? We're actively involved in selecting our experiences and crafting our own environments and choosing the kinds of things that we do through time. So as our character emerges from these early aspects of temperament or personality, along with all of our experiences and the sort of accrued, accumulated choices that we're making and decisions about even about what type of person we want to be, you know, how we think we should behave, that, to me, gives a much more nuanced and accurate view of how early genetic differences contribute to the emergence of our character, as opposed to simply dictating in some deterministic way exactly how we're going to behave on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. We always want to be able to share interesting stories from the world of genetics with as many people as possible. And the best way to do that is through word of mouth. So if you've got a friend you think might enjoy our show, why not tell them about us? Plus, it makes you look good by being able to recommend such an amazing podcast. Now, back to our interview with geneticist and neuroscientist Kevin Mitchell. We've been hearing about how early brain development can predispose a person to one personality type over another, and the interplay between genetics and the environment. I was curious about what evidence we have for the role of genetics on personality. A lot of the evidence that you present in the book comes from twin studies. I mean, yeah. thank God I'm not a twin because I swear every scientist would be interested in me if I was. 
And it's very often identical twins, so same genetics. I say identical in inverted commas because obviously we know that they're not identical, but identical twins who are raised apart. Firstly, how many are there? Like, what are the sample sizes of these kind of experiments? Yeah, so, well, first of all, I mean, that's one of the sources. So so what you're talking about is the field of behavioral genetics, which is coming at the same problem that I've been talking about from a different angle. So if it's true that genetic variation affects all these processes, as I've been saying, and contributes to making us all different from each other. The flip side of that is that people who are more related to each other should be more similar to each other, right? And that's what things like twin studies and family studies try to look at. And they're using tools that actually were developed in animal breeding and plant breeding. When people wanted to know, they're looking at some trait like milk yield in cattle or something like that. And they want to know, if I breed for this, how successful is this going to be in changing the yield of these cattle? And so you you can work out basically how much genetic variation in your population influences variation in the trait versus how much the environment or something else does. Could be developmental variation. And so in humans, it's the same idea If you're trying to infer that something has some genetic basis to the variation in it, then you can simply look at people who are related to each other and say, are they more similar to each other? And so, you know, if you look at height, for example, everyone knows that people who are related to each other tend to be more similar in height, right? But that's also true for wealth. And wealth is not genetically determined, it's environmentally or culturally determined. So just looking at family members doesn't really distinguish genetic effects from some family environment effect. And the way to do that is to use these twin studies, where there's a few different ways to do it. You can look at identical twins who are reared in different families, as you suggested, and there's a surprising number of those. Like, Is this like hospital mix-up type no, scenarios? No, it's, it's from very large adoption programs where some people have been studying these for you know 30 or, or 40 years. The surprising thing that came from a lot of these studies was that for a lot of these personality constructs that I was talking about earlier, they're quite highly genetic. That is, a lot of the variation that you see across the population is due to genetic differences. And there's surprisingly little effect of the family environment. It seems the way you're raised doesn't really affect those particular traits. Yeah, this baffled me because one of the things you said in the book is adoptive siblings, so these are people who are not genetically related but grew up in the same family, do not resemble each other for psychological traits any more than two strangers in the street. But they grew up together. They have this shared cultural experience. Yeah. I know, it's it's really surprising. Yeah. Is that just because nothing we do after birth matters? Uh, it certainly isn't, no. And, uh, but I mean, that, that has been uh, an interpretation of it. And I think that's too sort of simplistic, but it's understandable given the way that that science has been presented. To me, it comes down to what are the things that you're measuring? And if you're just measuring these things like extroversion and neuroticism and conscientiousness, well, yeah, maybe they really are biologically innate predispositions. That doesn't mean that the character of those individuals is not affected by their upbringing. There's all kinds of other things that psychologists don't tend to measure because they don't tend to be as stable or they're not as easy to measure. Their character traits like bravery or kindness or humility or honesty or those sorts of things, they're much harder to measure. They haven't been done on the same kind of scale. They have some genetic component to them, but they also have much more of a family upbringing to them. 
One of the things I find interesting about identical twins is that, as I alluded to before, they're not identical. No. And you have this thought experiment in your book where you take the same exact genome, so the same even epigenetic markers, what have you, Mm -hmm. and you say, egg, produce me this genome into a full human a hundred times. How similar are those 100 clones going to be? And and that's essentially what identical twins are, Mm -hmm. is that they are, here's the exact same genome, work it out. So obviously some genomes... You get two identical twins who are indistinguishable from each other, and then you can get two identical twins who look as if they're just normal siblings. And you suggest there might be a genetic component to that. How does that... That's a meta-level genetics. Yeah, yeah. This is some meta-level stuff, and it gets really tricky. Some genomes will produce clones with more variation than others. That is the amount of development of variation is itself a genetic trait, which I think is, I I find really fascinating. And there's good evidence from organisms like flies or mice that you can manipulate the variability of a phenotype genetically without manipulating the mean value of that phenotype. So you're really not changing the trait, you're just changing the variance around the trait. And where it becomes important is that that robustness is not just manifested in variability of the outcome, it also manifests as the ability to buffer the effects of serious mutations, like the ones that contribute to psychiatric illness, for example. And a lot of work in psychiatric genetics has, on the one hand, tried to find those rare mutations that increase risk of things like schizophrenia or autism or intellectual disability quite significantly by themselves. But you know, you could find two different people who have the same mutation, and one of whom has autism and the other doesn't. And so there's an idea that the genetic background also affects how well the embryo, as it's developing, can buffer the effects of those mutations. Surely everyone would want a genome that can buffer against bad mutations. Why would we have genomes that can't? Yeah, well, that's a great, it's a great question. You would, if natural selection were completely efficient at removing all of the new mutations that arise, then we would all have the same genome, right? There would be no genetic variation. Because it's not completely efficient, genetic variation accumulates, but it can accumulate to greater or lesser degree in different people. And actually, paradoxically, one of the reasons why it can accumulate is because the genome has to deal with this noise. It's making some proteins, But those proteins go off and diffuse, they connect with each other, they diffuse away. It's all very noisy molecular processes. So the genome has had to evolve systems that can robustly accommodate that variation. As a result of that, it also allows genetic variation to accumulate because you can get some genetic variants and the genome's like, actually, it's fine. I can totally deal with that. One of the studies you cited was that environmental twins that are raised in different families, their IQs, so their intelligence, gets more similar over time. Yeah. At the start, being in different families seems to have a big impact on their intelligence, but that they kind of converge to their underlying genetics. Does that mean that we can't really do anything to get out of our genetics? Yeah. Like our intelligence is just fixed and we can make small changes to it but it's always going to naturally want to come back to this true genetic value yeah it's it's tricky um 
it, so that's a difficult result to interpret. It's, it's a fairly robust one. It's been observed multiple times in different studies. So the heritability of something like IQ, when you measure it in children, is high, but there's also a, an effect of the shared family environment. And that effect of the shared family environment goes away. So it's not necessarily that the genetics is getting stronger. It's that the environmental effect that you see maybe is, is sort of temporary. But you'd think that the early childhood, that's when the brain is most plastic. Like yeah. if any, any bit of the environment is going to affect intelligence, it's going to be permanently, it's going to be that early childhood bit. Yeah. And I, so for me, I think one of the ways to think about this, it's not very satisfying, frankly, is that, uh, is again, the, the key is thinking of a trajectory through time, right? And so it's a little easier maybe with personality stuff than with IQ to think that people tend to follow their initial sort of personality traits in doing, choosing to do the kinds of things that they naturally like to do. And then they get better at them. So they do them more, you know, say for extroversion, really extroverted people, you know, they go out, they socialize. There's some skills to that, right? And, and they get better at it. They practice more. They practice and they like it and they keep doing it. And so, uh, whereas people who are slightly less extroverted to begin with may do that less, but over time, you those differences amplify between those two people, right? Because of this sort of self-reinforcing trajectory of driving our own behavior through time and then reinforcing it. And I think maybe something like that is happening with IQ or cognitive kinds of things as well, that maybe some people are naturally inclined to the kinds of activities that foster cognitive skills that would be measured on an IQ test. And maybe other people are more inclined to spend their time in different ways, and therefore, you can get, again, this kind of amplification of initial differences over this trajectory through time. But that's the only way to understand the relationship is you have to view it across that trajectory of the lifetime, just like understanding the relationship between genotypes and phenotypes at birth, you have to view through the trajectory of development. Now, something like extroversion is fairly neutral. I mean, as a Western society, we tend to prefer extroverts to introverts anyway. But talking about something like neuroticism, so that's being anxious, depressed, guilty, low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. If that's something innate to my brain, so a combination of the genes I inherited and how those genes developed my brain, does that mean I'm doomed to be neurotic for the rest of time, regardless of what I do about it, if it's very stable and very innate? So neuroticism, it is, a, it is a loaded term, right? Yeah. No one wants to be neurotic. Yeah. It, it makes it sound like being highly neurotic is terrible and being low in neuroticism is great, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to a certain extent, being really high in neuroticism, it is a risk factor, for example, for some psychiatric illness and for just, you know, not being very happy in, in life. So, so there is something bad to really high values, right? But there's also something bad to really low values in the sense that that might make people really reckless and you know, more impulsive. They're not thinking about the possible negative consequences of their actions. You know, I mean, during a pandemic, for example, being neurotic may be great. You know, you're more of a worrier. Well, great. You take more precautions under risky situations. So you know, evolution has not try to maximize or, or minimize these traits. In fact, the sort of the average is, you would think, is actually the, the sort of evolutionarily optimal value. It's very much situation dependent and frequency dependent and so on. So it becomes a much more kind of complex picture. 
So I can't do much environmentally to change my level of neuroticism, but that that might not necessarily be a bad thing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I took pains at one point to say that the book was not a self-help book. But having said that, I think just the realization that we may have some traits that we can't change those things about ourselves can be kind of empowering because it, you can stop wasting your time wishing you were different from the way you are and put your efforts into accommodating to yourself, as it were. And I think that the same is true for other people, You know, realizing that people really are wired differently in many ways, that they see the world differently and feel the world differently, and they value different kinds of things from you. It's just helpful in sort of dealing with people and accepting that variability and even embracing it. That's all for now. Thanks to Kevin Mitchell. And his book, Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are, is available in all good bookshops, evil bookshops, and even some chaotic neutral bookshops. We'll be back next time taking a look at whether size really does matter when it comes to your genes and genome, that is, and whether it's a good idea not to eat anything with more genes than you. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip, and please take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's made by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye.